Welcome to episode number 177 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we are talking about ineffective dust explosion isolation using material chokes on screw conveyors. And we're doing that with Jeff Mycroft, Regional Sales Manager of Fight Canada. Jeff, welcome back to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Uh, thanks for having me back, Chris. I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited to have Jeff on. Um, we had him on way back in episode 47 of the podcast, so over two and a half years ago, talking about the Canadian regulatory framework for combustible dust safety. I don't think it's changed a whole lot since then, so we're going to leave that topic for today. <laughs> or maybe it has. Maybe that's a good extra topic to do in the future. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about explosion isolation and in particular material chokes. And this is part one of a two-part series. In this part, we're talking about screw conveyors. Next week on the podcast, we'll be talking about rotary valves and using material chokes above rotary valves for explosion isolation as well. This topic came up through a post that was made in the Dust Safety Academy asking about explosion isolation using material chokes or product chokes. And specifically, the question was that the individual who made the, the request, made the, made the post, made the question, had seen that a number of consultants had made recommendations on using these type of systems globally. He's, he's worked out in Australia, he's worked in Asia Pacific, but that they were no longer backed up by NFPA standards, at least when it comes to the screw conveyors parts. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And then you broaden the scope of the question to talk about uh, rotary valves as well. There's a lot of good feedback. Jeff, a lot of really good, a number of really good comments. Jeremy Slon White from Remby Inc. up here in Canada as well left some really good comments. And the whole purpose then of this episode was to capture some of that feedback, capture some of that understanding so that when folks either a, have a, a system like this installed at their facility. You know, they know what kind of challenges might come about. When consultants are seeing this in industry or making recommendations, they have some ideas what that's about. And if you're more gen generally interested in combustible dust and listening to the podcast, you might learn some of the history of, of screw conveyors and this type of isolation method as well. So excited to have Jeff on. We're going to talk through what is a screw conveyor? What is this design concept for using a material choke for isolating a deflagration or, or an explosion. We're going to talk about some reasons why this has been removed from the NFPA standards, specific testing with this type of equipment. It was still common to see this in facilities and how to fix it. And what are some alternative methods for deflagration and or explosion protection? And that should be considered. I guess terminology-wise, we'll probably use the term explosion more common than deflagration here, where it is um, inside the screw conveyor. Both terms are not necessarily interchangeable, but for the purpose of this podcast episode, let's call them interchangeable. I'm not sure what uh, term Jeff generally uses when he's doing this type of stuff as well. So I think we'll get right into it. Jeff, it's been a while since we've had you on the podcast. Let's talk a bit about your role, your background, and what your role is in industry today before we move into the topic of the podcast. Okay, thank you. I'm a sales manager at Fight Canada, which we specialize in explosion protection. We work with end users, engineers, 37 jurisdictions, insurance companies, among others. Education uh, is um, a main component of what I do, but we're here to just try to minimize the chance of an explosion, as well as to provide safety equipment to mitigate or deal with an explosion after it happens. I've been with Fike for well over 25 years. Uh, I have a bachelor's of science in biochemistry, and I'm very familiar with all the applicable codes and standards surrounding these issues, as well as design and applications of the explosion protection systems themselves. Yeah, and what I really, I mean, I, I like all the guests on the podcast, obviously, but what I really appreciate about Jeff is one that you, you've, I don't know, how many, how many sites do you think you've walked or been through in Canada in terms of looking at their explosion protection, like hundreds, thousands, I, I don't know. 
Definitely into the well into the hundreds. It's hard to quantify after a certain point in time. Uh, I was trying to think of that the other day, and uh, I, you know, it's easy. It could be easy into the thousand as well, like uh, two. I, you know, it's, it it all blends into one, so a lot. <laughs> That's right. Well, I do appreciate it because Jeff's been one to step up and answer a lot of questions in the Dust Safety Academy. We also have a whole help desk that we run through Dust Safety Science, so people ask a question, and Jeff is one of the the kind of go to experts that we. We send the tough questions to because he has seen quite a bit. He's done a lot of work in these industries and he's a really, like he said, a, a key portion of his job is education. And he really provides that insight into why things are the way they are. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about. Let's talk about screw conveyor. So what is a screw conveyor? And then can you describe this you know, now outdated concept of using a product choke or a material choke for explosion isolation in these devices? Yeah. Um, okay. So it's literally a screw uh, or an auger uh, encased in a housing and it's designed to rotate and drag product through the housing from one end to the other. It, it like has a center shaft on which the outer fins kind of, of the auger rotate around. And the concept of using a product choke, I believe came from a solid thought that if you have a plug of material from the top of the screw conveyor to the bottom of the screw conveyor with no air gap, then it would stop the effects of a deflagration or explosion passing. They gave guidance on how to do this, where they broke the screw conveyor, where they really just removed the section of the fins on the auger for a short section and put a metal plate in the top, I don't know, approximately 55% of the auger housing with a notch for the screw conveyor shaft. So the top would be blocked entirely. And the concept is where, where the screw is broken, the incoming product would push into that space, fill the entire screw housing, and then push the product through the bottom 45%-ish of the screw, and that would be the break. And on the other side of the screw, and on the other side of that plate, the screw would start again and pick up that material coming through and uh, allow it to continue to convey. Yeah, and I kind of think like if you just imagined removing the screw and just putting, you know, plugging the the housing full of material and just pushing that, you know, that would have one kind of flow mechanism where you're pushing that material through that housing removing the section of the screw then has the screw pulls the material to that plug the plug builds up you have to push through it as material gets fed in and then the screw picks it up on the other side you end up or the design concept i guess is that you end up with a plug of material that fills the entire cross-sectional area of that screw and the plate in that can kind of help you know block any space that might come off and also encourage that plug to develop i did try to look back the the first place i've seen this is in um, Dr. Rolf Eckhoff's, the late Dr. Rolf Eckhoff's book, Dust Explosions in the Process Industries. In the third edition, if you go to page 75, you can actually see some examples of what we're talking about. So he has a horizontal screw with this baffle plate, um, and he also has an a inclined screw without the baffle plate. And is it more common not to have the baffle plate with an inclined screw? Maybe we'll provide a little bit of insight on why that might be the case, if you, if you know. I don't know if it's more common. It's an outdated method of of isolation it's being removed more facilities that i saw that it used to be where they had a product choke there i've seen them in both horizontal and uh, elevated screws and it really depends on the person that was designing it a lot of people thought if it was an inclined screw that you'd get that product choke anyway in the the lower section of the screw you'd always have some sort of product not necessarily the case and and not an effective form of explosion isolation in a lot of cases. So it's it really is site dependent and it may or may not have been thought about or properly implemented as well. 
Yeah, it makes sense. And the original reference there is actually an individual named Wheeler from 1935. It says, did some tests here. We're going to get into the possible, you know, why this was removed in that in a second. But I will note that in the, here's the, the text. Wheeler conducted a series of experiments in which rice meal explosions were formed in a 3.5 meter cubed steel vessel, vented through the choked screw conveyors and through a safety vent at the other end of the vessel. Dust clouds were ejected downstream at the downstream end of the conveyor, but no flame. So right there, you know, he did these tests and a whole bunch of dust came flying out the other end of the screw, but no flame. But if you change some of the conditions of the dust, the test, the, you know, size of the vessel housing it, and we might get into a bit in this podcast, if you eject all of that dust out of the screw, then you're going to eject flame after the dust. That's just one of the potential failure methods. So if you just put one of these things in there undesigned, it's not just guaranteed to, to work. And Let's talk about that a bit because I, I tried to figure out when this was removed from the FPA standards. I was unsuccessful. Um, going back to at least um, every version of NFPA 69, which is the standard on explosion prevention systems, has this statement in section 12.2.4. So section 12 is deflagration control by passive isolation. Subsection 2 is passive isolation technologies. And then sub subsection, I guess, 12.2.4 is material chokes. If you actually look at the appendix information, it says the mass of bulk solids or powders contained in rotary valves provides a torturous path. That's a funny word, but uh, you know, a path that's hard to get through, which the gas and flame have to pass. So it acts as a material choke when certain design features are implemented. In previous editions of the standard, screw conveyors were included as a material choke. However, industry experience shows that these devices are not reliable as isolation devices. So this is in 2008. 19, I guess would be the newest version of NFPA 69. And every previous version down to 2008 <laughs> has the same statement. I couldn't find any, the, the previous versions, 2008. So I couldn't really tell when this was removed, when in your experience showed that these devices are not reliable as isolation devices. But since at least 2008, it's been um, excluded from the NFPA 69 standards. So it all goes to say, I tried to find the history. <laughs> what I really want to find was why, you know, when it says you can use a screw conveyor, how, what kind of design parameters that maybe should be considered, but it's unsuccessful. Are you able to provide any insight on, you know, why screw conveyors may have been removed from this type of isolation technique? I don't have any hard concrete data that said at this point in time, the committee found that there was multiple incidences that occurred and they didn't work as, as designed. But everyone you talked not everyone. A lot of people I've talked to has an anecdotal story, at very least, where they're working on site and, a, and they had an explosion where it propagated through a conveyor with a product choke. So it wasn't uncommon for those stories to be occurring. And I actually have been involved in a situation where a company uh, was removing, was getting proper explosion isolation and removing these product chokes. And they had a, an incident at a different facility. Uh, so they had firsthand experience that they didn't work in that specific scenario. And subsequently, um, this wasn't part of the reason why NFDA changed it, but subsequently, Fike Corporation, we have a large test facility, um, and we do real-world size testing, and we have actually have tested uh, in uh, screw conveyors. This, was a, this particular test I'm referring to was a horizontal screw conveyor, we did this test and most people involved thought there'd be enough material and in the screw conveyor to stop the propagation. And uh, they were surprised to see that that was not the case, that the exposure did propagate, deflagration did propagate from one 
uh, vessel to the other. And this was done when uh, uh, a, like a functional hammer mill and uh, using malt. So obviously the dust uh, that you're using, how fine in the KST, there's a lot of parameters that are involved. But in this particular test, that uh, a lot of the factors that we saw that would have uh, given us the impression that it wouldn't have traveled through uh, showed that we were wrong as well. So it's it's not something that's easily definable. And before you run an actual test, some of your assumptions being made might be incorrect. In that test, I'm not sure if they had the diagnostics to evaluate, you know, the, actually what happened. But you know, two of the mechanisms I, that come to mind right away are just pushed all that material out. <laughs> you know, pushed the entire plug through the screw. And the other is that there's a, actually a gap, a hole, likely at the top of the screw conveyor where the deflagration could pass through any other kind of failure mechanisms that you can think of. I want to get to, you know, when you're actually using it, you, you got to maintain the material as well, but sort of in under normal use conditions, are there any other sort of failure mechanisms that, that might've occurred there? And uh, you made probably the two most common factors, right? The, the, it's all dependent on the characters of explosion. If you're going to, that plug will stay there in the first place. If you have a small vessel and a, a low KST explosion that uh, happens, uh, it's not going to generate as much pressure for as long. And you don't have to worry about it as much as, say, a giant silo where you have a very long uh, explosion. Like it occurs over a long period of time. And that pressure pushing on product will move that out of the way over the course of time. So product, how heavy it is, how much of it is, how long the screw all would uh, come into play in, in those uh, scenarios. As well as, like you said, if there is an air gap across the top, if they didn't put that hard mechanical choke uh, at the top, or if there wasn't enough product up against it at that point in time, like the screw was ran until the it emptied itself, there would be a large propagation pathway on those. Like you said, I think we can get into a little bit later, but the how that choke is maintained is critical in this. So actually, just stepping back a little bit as well, when they were removed in uh, 2008, part of the scuttlebutt that I, at least I heard was also they're found to dis like functionality-wise, broken screws don't work very well. <laughs> like they uh, they found they destroyed the throughput of that screw. They caused blockages. There's always increased maintenance, increased wear. They even actually caused some fires in certain circumstances where that product was just sitting there and friction was rubbing on it and rubbing on it for an extended period of time. So it's just one of those ones where it, it's not a good way of doing it in the first place. Like it's just not a, from a production standpoint, uh, I didn't find one, someone in maintenance that didn't despise the, uh, the, the choke itself, even if it was working. But uh, that's beside the point of this particular thing. It's just one of those ones that's a, not a good way of, of it, it. There are ways to defeat that choke, even if it's being done properly. And it's not a good way of doing it. Yeah, I think that's probably the real summary is that, you know, it's a it's a method that when you look at it and go, okay, well, how are we going to isolate this explosion? Well, let's just remove part of the screw and we'll have a plug. Like, it's easy to say that. But there there's there's failure methods associated with it that are numerous, not easy to quantify, not easy to judge if and when it's going to fail. There's actual operational considerations like, you know, when is the thing turned off? Do, when do you run out of product? Under what cases does it it not have a plug? 
And unfortunately, some of those cases probably line up with abnormal running operations that are precursors to an explosion or during an incident. So if you have a fire and you shut off the material flow, but you forget to shut off the screw because it's not, they're not coupled, well then, you know, that's going to run out of material. Then if that fire ignites an explosion in a silo, then it's going to propagate through. So it's kind of like they're, they're, the operational considerations are coupled through with how well the thing works and it's not likely to work at the, the worst times. And then most importantly, it's not really a great solution production-wise and it may cause issues. <laughs> so once you break that screw, then you don't get that material flowing through well, causes uh, you know issues with the effectiveness of that system. And at that point, you're probably going to have folks coming through and, and putting fixes in place to fix that that may actually cause more safety issues down the road. So it's like it, it crosses puts X in all three boxes of, of being a useful isolation technique. Yeah. Anything else on that before we talk about what, you know, might we do if we see these in place and what are some of the, the other methods that, that might be used instead? I guess just what you said, you summarized it really, really well. The explosions are more common in startup and shutdown and maintenance just after maintenance um, for a variety of reasons, which we don't need to go into today. But that's what happened when, when you have to pull a screw apart to clean it or do some maintenance on it, and it's empty when they start back up. You, you've lost that, right? Or if someone had left that uh, auger going when it was supposed to shut off, uh, the fill indicator was broke or for some reason or, or some other issue on that. These are all things that can have this method that uh, used to be uh, okay that's been seen as not reliable for these exact reasons. So um, uh, there's just a, a wide variety of things that even if everything's working properly, when an, a process upset of some sort or maintenance or whatnot, there's just, just many, many ways of defeating this uh, explosion isolation method. Okay. And I kind of want to circle back to like the original question then that the individual one was looking for information, like we talked about already, why these fail, why they're not a good idea. But is it common to still see these in industries in some places? And is there any fixes that can be implemented? Or is this really a matter of trying to redesign the system? Or, you know, what kind of practical, I don't want to say guidance, because we're not saying if you have the screw conveyor, go ahead and do this yourself. Probably bring somebody in that knows what they're doing. Don't listen to this podcast episode and, and use that as your justification to make your decision. Um, but, you know, what kind of, what things have you seen that have been helpful for folks to think about when they're trying to um, fix these systems? Or is it just a blanket, you know, you got to go with a, an alternative method? Great question. Uh, it's one of those, I haven't seen any new systems for uh, at least a decade now that, that I'm aware of that put a material choke in a screw conveyor as a part of its design. I think, I think the common knowledge out there is it isn't an acceptable practice and there are process issues. I'd like to think that's the case. Maybe I just haven't seen them, but for the people that have the the actual choke in place, they've probably they already know what we've been talking about and some of the issues they've been experiencing. And now knowing that it probably doesn't work in many situations, getting rid of that is you know might be a priority. At least evaluating if they have a, the safety systems in there to guarantee that it would be there when it's supposed to be. But in order to properly protect the like properly have an explosion barrier like a something to stop that propagation there are a, f a few options available where you can put like depending on your throughput and what you need you can put a rotary valve either before or after or even both on the ends of the screw and that uh, a properly nfpa designed rotary valve that uh, would provide that barrier 
to stop the explosion from propagating from one area to the other. Uh, there's also active explosion protection systems where you can uh, detect the explosion and then inject a, a barrier, a proven barrier in there. So it lasts for the duration of that explosion and doesn't allow it to propagate. There are no real ideal passive besides the rotary, like gate valves or pinch valves uh, are susceptible to wear or uh, can be because there can be large amounts of material that might not be able to close because they're going to be blocked. So it's really rotary valves are the only ones we typically see in chemical isolation uh, systems as a economical way of changing from one to the other. Yeah, that makes sense. And and we're going to talk about rotary valves in next week's podcast episode. They have their own challenges and cases where they could be ineffective. They are still an accepted isolation technique within NFPA 69. So we'll talk about, you know, considerations for designing those. Um, that's one option. And then really, you know, some sort of active system where you're sensing the deflagration, the explosion based on, uh, I'm not sure what you what you would use, but, you know, pressure or temperature or um, infrared, whatever whatever kind of sensors you're using. And then some sort of chemical isolation is your, your other option as well. Um, you did mention some of the challenges about some passive systems, making sure there's not material in there, making sure that it can actually close and that, that maybe those aren't the, the best uh, approaches to be using in screw conveyors as well. Anything else on this topic? I mean, this is kind of interesting from my perspective. We had a question that came in through Dust Safety Academy, a consultant on the other side of the world saying, hey, I'm seeing these systems. People are telling me they're safe. I see this statement in FPA that's been removed due to industry experience, but I have no background on why that's the case. Now I can actually point them to this podcast episode once it comes live and say, here's, you know, here's a bunch of considerations to be thinking about with the results to that. But anything else to close out this episode today, Jeff, from your experience with these systems that folks should be thinking about? I think you summarized it pretty well. Uh, I guess one thing I didn't say is the code does allow, if even though it doesn't specifically state it, if you have a, done a, a performance compliance. So if you can, if you've done testing or if you have information or uh, data to verify this particular choke you're using and the reasons behind it, then it could still be compliant. There are ways to defeat it, so we're not positive. We're not very pro choke on these because there has been a history there and testing now and just various uh, flaws with it. So we tend to try to steer people away from, especially at the design stage. But if you already have it in there and you have, like, you know your product, uh, you've done an engineering study or done a real world test on that, and it has been proven effective, then it it's possibly it is possible that you it is compliant and you can use that. However, I have yet to find the company that has done that testing or has that depth of knowledge on their product. I'll raise two points here. One is that, so to do performance-based design, the statement, we've never had an issue before, that's not... <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. Um, that, <laughs> not a little. Um, even if you sign the piece of paper that says that, that's not what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about an actual engineering evaluation on whether or not your system with your parameters and your dust and your materials running the way you'd normally do it would successfully aid the explosion under normal conditions. And then you'd also need to understand startup and shut down any abnormal conditions. And that would come out of your, your hazard, your dust hazard analysis or your risk assessment. In addition with that performance-based equipment, I would say, you know, Fike is a great company to do that type of performance-based design. There's also several others, you know, through DustAid Professionals and elsewhere that that would do that type of testing. My guess is it's going to be a lot more expensive than, um, than just 
adding some rotary valves in and and you know getting a new screw conveyor uh, i don't know if jeff has a, a comment on that but my guess is going that route might be more trouble than it's worth but you know, there's all kinds of different systems in the world so if you have a case where you got a whole bunch of these and you need to test it then maybe but that even raised some questions on how valid that performance based design is going to be across that set of equipment so that's probably all the guidance we can give give on that at the current moment, Jeff, unless you have anything else to add. No, you're exactly right. The cost to evaluate it and do that testing is always going to be more expensive than the various options that are available. We don't even sell rotary valves. Uh, and you actually you can also use double dump valves um, in series as long as they can't be open at the same time. But to stop that propagation, but they're very, very effective and they're cost effective uh, solutions as well. To in order to to do that engineering to try to find out if it's compliant or do the testing, I can't even begin to quantify depending on the the process. Yeah, expensive, we'll say. <laughs> expensive, yes. Great. Okay. Well, I think that's a, you know a good place to leave off this episode of the podcast, talking about screw conveyors, talking about ineffective dust explosion isolation using material chokes in them. Um, Jeff, I appreciate your time and your experience. I appreciate the work you've done in industry. We look forward to having you back on the podcast next week for part two when we do talk about a not outdated method of explosion isolation using material chokes. That's for rotary valves, and that's what we talk about next week. Thanks for having me back, Chris. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Look forward to talking soon. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Jeff Mycroft, regional sales manager of Fight Canada, and he's based out of Ontario. We'll be talking about ineffective dust explosion isolation using material chokes. Again, this is part one of a two-part series where in this episode we talked about screw conveyors and some concepts and ideas around why they've been removed from NFPA 69 as a, a valid explosion protection and prevention method. It has been removed since at least 2008's version of 69. I couldn't find the previous versions to see when it was last included. Um, the original concepts come back from the 1930s of breaking a screw in the middle, having that plug material using that as a, a deflagration or explosion isolation, passive explosion isolation system in that screw conveyor. So we talked through a number of things around this. We say, explain what it is. You know, you could have a, a inclined screw or horizontal screw. You can put a break in the screw, which creates that plug material. You can put a baffle plate in there. There's different design considerations that come into that. But there's really three challenges with using this system. The first one is that it isn't guaranteed to isolate the explosion. In a lot of cases, and this is why, you know, as far as we can tell, it was removed, was that people had these in place. And they were having explosion in one vessel and it was propagating through the next vessel, which causes other challenges. There's turbulence buildup, there's pre-pressurization of the second vessel, causes a much more severe explosion on the second vessel. Chances are that it's not vented or whatever protection methods used is not sufficient. And the explosion in that second vessel is often much more devastating explosion in the first vessel. So isolation is really a critical component here. When you have the explosion in vessel number one, we'll call it, it's sort of like a piston that drives through that screw conveyor. So as a given force and a given duration. The, the length of that piston action depends on the size of the vessel. And the force depends on things like the KST, that dust, and how violent that explosion is. That's pushing against that plug of material and going to push it out of that screw at some given rate. And if that pushes out before the flames extinguish, then you, know, you won't isolate that explosion. So there's that. Then there's also cases where you may you know, have a non-effective plug of material the flame can propagate through or above that material. Those all come into play. So those are all saying that scenario one or case one is that it just isn't that effective an isolation technique. Case two is that, and, and Jeff used a really good word here, it can be defeated in many different ways. There's many different scenarios where 
you stop feeding material into that screw conveyor and it augers out, you know, has no more material left in it, no longer functions correctly. Um, there's other cases where you might get partially filled material. And all those cases sort of line up with things that are known to have issues like fires and explosions, like startup and shutdown, abnormal working conditions. So those are sort of second class category of reason why this isn't a great idea. And then the third is that just doesn't work that well. So it's going to slow down your production. It's going to cause a bunch of maintenance headaches. It may lead to fires, which then could you know, be ignition source for an explosion. And all three of those things together come out of the industry experience that you know, you're seeing systems actually not isolate the explosion. really leads it to, to not really being a good idea, or at least as far as we can tell. Again, we couldn't go back and find the actual original reason why it was taken out of Antipay 69, but that's some information around that. We did talk a bit through what to do. So if you have a, you know, it's not very common to see these in new facilities, new systems that are put out there. But if you do have an older facility, you may see these from time to time. And Jeff gave some really good points here saying it's probably best to look at an alternative isolation technique and, you know, improving that screw conveyor system rather than trying to evaluate its performance. We talked about, you know, performance-based design as potentially being an option, but quite expensive to do this sort of testing. And really, that's only going to validate it for the designed use cases. You still then have to deal with the cases where you have abnormal operation through a risk assessment, through a hazard analysis as well. Might be an option to, to evaluate these systems. But at the end of the day, you're probably looking at replacing them with alternative isolation methods. One of the alternative isolation methods that Jeff mentioned in the, the interview was to use a rotary valve at the beginning or the end or both of the screw conveyor. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. More probably about rotary valves and silos using material chokes, but we'll, we'll talk, we'll kind of tie this back in as well. Again, this is all from section 12.2 of NFPA 69 that talks through passive isolation techniques. So as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. Appreciate everything you're doing. Industries handling muscle dust, making them safer with the work you do every day. Um, keep it up out there. 